0: Hi, you're listening to a podcast from the Galton Institute Conference from 2019, all about the ancient history of Britain, which was held at the Royal Society. In this episode, you'll hear Professor Cherie King from the University of Leicester. She's an ex archaeologist and current geneticist who's been exploring the secrets of the Y chromosome and finding some famous people along the way.
1: So, I actually started out as an archaeologist um, at the University of Cambridge. And uh, it was when sort of the early stages when genetics was starting to be used as kind of another layer of information. And as technology has improved, this ability to retrieve analyzable DNA from ancient remains um, has just been skyrocketing. And one of the really nice things to do is to be able to look at the DNA and use that alongside archaeological evidence to build a sort of more holistic picture of what went on in the past.
0: What did DNA research look like when you first started, and what does it look like now?
1: Well, in the very, very early days, so I was actually using modern DNA to look at the past, um, mainly concentrating on the Y chromosome. And at the time, the Y chromosome wasn't thought to be terribly... Well, we didn't have very many markers that we could use to distinguish Y chromosomes. Apart from one another, now there's something like eighty-two thousand different um, SNPs, so single nucleotide polymorphs, and single letter differences uh, on the Y chromosome that we can use to differentiate, and that's without using sort of the the sort of markers that are used for DNA fingerprinting. So there's, it's come on hugely. Um, we've also had next-generation sequencing happen. Um, and that has meant that we are able to retrieve far more DNA out of these ancient remains, I sequence larger portions of the DNA that come out of these
0: ancient remains. So yes, it's completely changed from when I started. And could you, could you quickly explain to me what's the Y chromosome and what, what are um, biomarkers? The
1: Y chromosome is a section of DNA. Um, It's one of our, our 46 chromosomes, and it's part of the chromosome pair that are the sex chromosomes. So our sex chromosomes are X and Y. Women have got two copies of the X chromosome. Men have got an X chromosome, and also this rather titchy little Y chromosome. But I always say size doesn't matter. It's got a very important job to do, and that's because it has on the gene, which is essentially for maleness, it switches on, Um, at a few weeks gestation and it starts that kind of cascade of chemical reactions that start having the fetus going down the path to becoming a boy. So the Y chromosome is passed down just through the male line and it's passed down virtually unchanged save for the gradual accumulation of mutations Um, and that allows us to look at differences among men's
0: Y chromosome types. So how does looking at modern DNA tell us about the past? Well
1: so this is how we actually started out was we would look at modern um, biomarkers so differences that we know occur in the genome or on the Y chromosome or on mitochondrial DNA which is a small circular piece of DNA which comes down through the female line and we would use that to look at the differences and then we would try and extrapolate back as to what's happened to cause the genetic diversity that we see today and then we'd extrapolate and kind of test various theories against the data that we would see. Obviously now with ancient DNA we can add that at different time slices which allows us to have a more accurate picture as to what actually happened.
0: Are there any sort of fallacies or easy mistakes to make that, you know, we think DNA can answer everything?
1: (laughs) Oh, my goodness, yes. So um, one of the things that kind of really started to arise, um, gosh, uh, about 10 to 15 years ago was these genetic testing companies. And they would look at Y chromosome types from mitochondrial DNA, and they would say, um, this is a Danish Viking type, or this is a Norse Viking type, or you are Anglo-Saxon, this kind of thing. And actually, you can't do that sort of thing. You can't tie a single man's Y chromosome type to a, historical cultural group, because it's not like Vikings all had the same Y chromosome type. Um, You might find that there's Y chromosome types at high frequency in Norway, but you find them in other parts of Europe, so you can't guarantee it hasn't come through another route. So yes, there's all kinds of stuff that happens with these genetic ancestry testing companies um, that make me sometimes want to throw stuff at the television when I see the advertisements. And it's an interesting one because obviously the public is not going to know this. Um, And so it's one of these things about slowly sort of educating the public about what genetic testing can and can't do, really.
0: How easy is it to get ancient DNA?
1: Not terribly. (laughs) It's very time consuming. It it really does depend on the sample. Um, and it depends on which part of the, the remains that you are sampling from, so teeth are great. And one of the things that really kicked off ancient DNA into sort of the, the stratosphere was finding out that the petrous bone, which is part of the temporal bone inside the skull, um, it contains the most amount of endogenous, so DNA from the person per square inch sort of thing. It's very, very hard. Um, so that, if you're going to get DNA out of anything, it tends to be from that. But one of the biggest things you have to worry about is contamination. It's, you know, all you need to do is hold these remains and you're putting your DNA all over it, which is in nice long strands. The DNA that you're getting from ancient remains is very fragmented. It's damaged if there's anything left at all. So that's your biggest thing, contamination with modern DNA. And so it's quite a long and involved process. um, You're constantly having to think about not doing anything to contaminate the remains and, and be
0: very, very careful with the work that you're doing. Has that ever happened where someone's like actually gone through with publishing when they've accidentally sequenced themselves?
1: Absolutely, so one of the the most famous ones um, was one of the first cases where they they claimed to be able to get DNA out of a dinosaur, bless, and it turned out they'd actually sequenced themselves. and that actually set ancient dna back a little bit because it was how do we know this is true but out of it came a set of kind of real sort of specific guidelines about making sure that ancient dna is done properly
0: yeah. wow it's so it's so complete <laughs> absolutely <laughs> um, so what would your biggest takeaway be then about about the role dna has to play in in looking at
1: Well, I think the really important thing to take away is that DNA is one layer of information. I'm very, very big on multidisciplinary research, that it shouldn't be done in isolation. um, For one thing, so, I mean, having been an archaeologist and then a a geneticist, one of the first things I will do is go and talk to archaeologists and go, this is the sort of stuff that I'm finding. What do you think? Does this make sense from what you know? Um, And I think that's really, really important, bringing in experts from different fields to give a much wider picture of which DNA is just one strand of that.
0: And I believe your work has brought you into contact with quite a famous figure as well. It has. <laughs> so
1: I was the um, person who led the genetic al- analysis in the King Richard III case, um, and I was positively assured that it would be half a day of my time because we would not find him. As it was, we found him on the very first day, six hours and thirty-four minutes in. We found a little bit of leg bone, so um, which. After we, we didn't excavate him at the time because we know we're looking for a set of remains that, and there could be thousands of skeletons and we know he's supposed to be in the choir of the church of the friar. We don't even know if we're in the friary at this point. So we wait two weeks as we're excavating and realize that actually that skeleton looks like it's in quite an interesting place. We should probably go and excavate that. Um, and then it was a youngish male with battle injuries and severe scoliosis of the spine. All the things we knew would fit about the sort of skeleton that we were looking for. And then I led the genetic analysis for that.
0: And what did you find from that? Oh,
1: well, OK, so that was interesting. So what I was doing was I was looking at those two pieces of DNA that are passed down in a really simple way down through the generation. So mitochondrial DNA, female line, and Y chromosome, male line. So had living female line relatives. Did that mitochondrial DNA, that matched the skeleton. Um, doing the Y chromosome, slightly different. And I knew this going in because obviously the Y chromosome that a man has is that of his biological father, who might not be the father that he thinks it is. Um, so if there'd been sort of any sort of medieval hanky-pinky that had gone on, then there wouldn't be a Y chromosome match. Um, And as it was, um, there wasn't a Y chromosome match. And it was interesting because we we didn't know where that had happened in the family tree. There's 19 generations that it could have occurred in. um, And in those 19 generations are some interesting historical royal figures. So when we published it, we said, well, this this is quite interesting. We don't know where it is, but it could be potentially in these sort of areas. um, And that could have implications for the royal monarchy. And that's what the press completely picked up on. (laughs) And I spent a long time going back up, back up, back up. We don't know where this has happened. Um, And it doesn't have an impact on Queen Elizabeth because that was the big thing was should she be on the throne? I was like, oh, my goodness, what have we done? Anyway, so it was just um, not totally unexpected, but it was, again, very interesting to see what the public and
0: press reaction was to that. You needed a ye olde Jeremy Kyle. (laughs) Yes, it was. I
1: know. (laughs) It's one of the pictures I have on one of my slides is a picture of the Queen in front of Jeremy Kyle. (laughs) <laughs> it did go a little bit crazy. <laughs>
0: and, and just lastly, that's not the only thing you found on that dig, is it?
1: Um, yes, I actually uh, found my husband. So uh, he was the cameraman who was filming on the very first day and, um, and was asking me, so do you think you'll find Richard III? Um, and we became friends and we got married last year. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you.
0: You never know what you'll find on a dig. That was Professor Churi King from the University of Leicester speaking to me at the Galton Institute Conference at the Royal Society in London. You can find out more about the Institute and watch short videos from other conference speakers online at galtoninstitute.org.uk. This podcast was produced by me, Georgia Mills, for First Create the Media. And the music was Drops of H2O by Jay Lang, which was licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Licence. Thanks for listening.